Hello, and welcome to the November 4th, 2022 edition of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician, triathlon coach, and multiple Ironman finisher, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. We are now one week out from the final major event on the triathlon calendar for this year, that being the 70.3 World Championships held in St. George, Utah on October 28th and 29th. I was fortunate to be able to participate in the men's race last Saturday, and I have several observations that I think are worthwhile, especially given my participation in the Ironman World Championships just a short three weeks earlier. First of all, St. George continues to distinguish itself as a fantastic location for triathlon. Sand Hollow State Park is a great body of water for the swim. The bike course is scenic and challenging with great road surfaces and some wonderful climbs, including, of course, the much well, shall we say overhyped Snow Canyon, that while magnificent, is really only two miles of significant gradients that stresses people out for reasons that I still don't totally understand. The descent back into town is crazy fast, making the course more like a 46-mile ride rather than 56 because of how little you really have to do over that last 10 miles. And then there's the run. The worst of the climbs were gone for this version of the race, but it was still diabolical, with some pretty steep sections and more than enough suffering to keep everyone honest. Leading up to the race, everyone was freaking out not just over Snow Canyon, but over the weather, as is the norm. And to be fair, it was cold on race mornings, but as I have learned over the years, it's a good idea to get it in your head that you should start cold, because you're not going to stay that way. In all my years of racing, I have only regretted wearing too much, not too little and I could see across both days that this was the case for many. As it was, I only wore gloves and toe warmers and was very happy with that choice. I was never cold, and my transition times were far faster than others who needed time to put on lots of layers in T1 and then remove all of those in T2. But more than just the venue, the community of St. George really stood out to me as being incredibly welcoming. Unlike in Kona, where the locals were just honestly openly hostile, the people of St. George were constantly smiling and thanking triathletes just for coming to visit. Volunteers were plentiful for both days and always so joyous and helpful. The contrast between the two event cities was really, really striking. Consider also that Kona hasn't seen an event in three years, while St. George has hosted four in two years, including three world championships in just 13 months. And that's pretty amazing. Of course, there was sensational racing as well. On the women's side, the amazing Taylor Nib was out of the water right on the heels of Lucy Charles Barkley, but assumed the lead early on the bike never to relinquish it. The American has had quite an amazing couple of years in the 70.3 circuit, and I'm eager to see where she goes from here. Charles Barkley, for her part, finished fourth on the day, quite a feat given her second place finish in Kona, and all of this coming off of a pretty bad injury just earlier in the year. As was the case in Kona, the men's race was less certain than the women, and we had to wait for the last couple of miles for things to be determined. A large group came out of the swim together, and although the seemingly indefatigable Christian Blumenfeld surged to the lead early in the bike, he was never alone, and it was far from certain that he would be able to hold off the hard-charging runners who were coming from behind. When Magnus Ditliv stormed to the front in Snow Canyon, others followed, and at the start of the run it seemed as though we were in for quite a half-marathon. But that's when Ben Canute blew everything apart, running up diagonal to the tune of sub-five-minute miles. Only Blumenfeld could follow, and it quickly became a two-man race. In the end, the Norwegian was somehow able to stomp the pace even more in the last couple of miles and open a small gap on Canute, leaving Ben to take second, and Ditliff came home in third. 
Newly crowned Ironman champ and defending 70.3 champ Gustav Eden withdrew about halfway through the run, seemingly one of the few who actually showed signs of fatigue from having raced in Hawaii not that long ago. So as I said on the last episode, Ironman has some serious thinking to do about what to do with this signature event. Other venues are clearly capable and willing to put on a great show, and the athletes are willing to go there, at least for 70.3 Worlds anyways. Could the same kind of excitement be built around a rotating Ironman championship as well, or will that event forever be inextricably intertwined with the Big Island? In addition, based on what we have seen just this month from both the men and women, professional racing and triathlon is off the hook right now with some of the most amazing athletes who are making the sport incredibly exciting and unpredictable at every event. And I, for one, am looking forward to watching much, much more. One last observation, and this one is very much personal. In 2021, I did the 70.3 Worlds, followed some three weeks later by Ironman Indiana. This year, I reversed things, competing first in an Ironman in Hawaii, and then three weeks later at 70.3 Worlds. In my experience, and I think this may come as a surprise, and it certainly did for me, I found that doing the Ironman first, followed by the 70.3, actually went far better. And I think there are a few reasons for this, and one huge caveat. I'll start with the caveat, and that is you have to be able to recover well and quickly from an Ironman to be able to do what I did this year and come away thinking that it worked well. I believe that my training regimen with high volume and consistency led me to be able to do that, but I recognize that not everyone will be able to succeed in this regard, especially people who are in older age groups. Assuming that you can, though, the reason I like things in this order related to my ability to train better and the fact that the Ironman actually set the table for the 70.3 better than the other way around. For example, I was really well-trained heading into Hawaii, and that carried through to St. George, whereas in 2021, I feel like I lost some training in doing the 70.3 race prior to the Ironman. I needed to recover a little bit from the big effort that the half Ironman does in terms of the higher intensity, and I couldn't really get that last couple of big workouts in for the Ironman where I think it would have helped me. In addition, the 70.3 race was mentally so much easier after an Ironman. Looking at the swim course, it was like so much shorter than what you looked at when you looked at the swim course in Hawaii. On the bike, you finish 25 miles and you're like, wow, I'm halfway done. And that's clearly not the case in an Ironman. And even for the run, anytime you were tired, you just kind of reminded yourself, well, I only have to do 13 miles today and not a full Ironman. So mentally, doing the 70.3 after an Ironman was really, really a nice experience. But that's just me. I'd love to hear from any listeners who did the same world championship double as I did. What was your experience? Do you agree or disagree with me? Send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com or drop your comments into our private Facebook group for the TriDoc podcast. If you're not a member of that group, please do ask to become a member. There's a couple of very easy questions to answer. I'll grant you entry and I'd love to hear your thoughts. On the show today, the entire program is again being dedicated to a question that came from my listeners. A little while ago, I spoke with Joe Wilson, who did me the honor of serving as my interviewer so that I could shed some light on my own history in multisport, how I went from being a newbie to a middle-of-the-pack athlete to a world championship qualifier. At that time, I promised a follow-up to answer a related question that listeners had asked, specifically, how do I manage it all? I'm an emergency physician, a dad to three amazing kids, husband to one incredible woman, a coach to many terrific triathletes, a podcaster, and yet I still am able to get my own training done. 
Sometimes, honestly, I kind of amaze myself at what I get done during an average day. Well, today, my friend and the publisher of the popular 303 triathlon, Bill Plock, sits down with me and serves as the questioner to try and tease those answers out of me. And that's coming up in just a second. Before that, I want to take a moment to once again thank all of my Patreon supporters of this podcast who have decided that for about the price of a cup of coffee per month, they could sign up to support this program and in doing so get access to bonus interviews and other segments that come out about every month or so. For North American subscribers at the $10 per month level of support, I also have a special thank you gift for you in the form of a pretty cool Boko TriDoc podcast running hat. So visit my Patreon site today at patreon.com forward slash tridocpodcast and become a supporter so that you too can get access and maybe this cool gift as well. And as always, I thank you in advance just for considering. By popular demand, my guest on the podcast today is, it's me. And to do that, I, again, am not really interested in just sitting here and talking. And so I've invited someone to come and do an interview. And that person today is in the form of Bill Plock. Bill is a very well-known individual on the triathlon scene here in Colorado. He is the owner and publisher of 303 Triathlon, amongst other publications. We have known each other for some time. He was a guest on the podcast in a earlier episode, and I am very pleased to have him here to basically take the reins of this interview and ask some questions that my listeners have asked for, essentially trying to get a better understanding of how it is that I have managed to find success in this sport, especially given the fact that I'm as busy as I am doing all of the things that I have to do. So Bill, I'm going to turn this segment over to you, and you can take the reins and Go wherever you like with the conversation, as long as we get to that part of the topic that the listeners want to hear, which is, of course, my ability to juggle all of those balls in the air. That sounds good. Thanks for having me, Jeff. It's an honor to be able to pepper you a little bit with some questions. And I'm, I'm, But before we get to that, I'm just curious. You got back from Kona pretty recently. You raced over there. You had a pretty good race, it seemed like, to me. And I would love to hear about your experience and how it went. Yeah, I had a great time. It's interesting. It's the first time, of course, that it was a two-day event. And I think that on balance, it was definitely a net positive, but there are certainly some negatives. I guess that's probably as good a place as any to begin going there. I arrived earlier this time. Previously, when I went back in 2018, I arrived on Tuesday or Wednesday for a Saturday race. This time I actually arrived on Saturday the 1st for a race that was on the 8th for me. And I definitely like that. It was nice to have a full week leading into it. Now I did go to the medical conference. I was an attendee at the medical conference mm. as well. And while I enjoyed the medical conference, I think I took too much on because I found myself running around quite a bit and doing a lot of things. And I felt stressed for those first few days. So not sure I would do that again, but <laughs> They do that every year, right? That medical conference, don't they? Yeah, it's every in? year and it's every year. And the people who go to the conference volunteer in the medical tent at both races. So that was a huge bonus for the Ironman events to have that many physicians and PAs and PTs around who are able to staff the medical tent. And the medical tent was very busy. So we'll get yeah, there. I yeah, I bet. So tell me about the, before we move on to some other things about you, tell me about your impression of the... I'm really curious, like the finish line, the vibe, having two races. There's no way it could probably match a one-day vibe, but was it close? Was it 
about the same? I'd argue is even more really? because there's more people, right? There's more people okay. there. There's more in the, and the vibe was bigger and louder for longer. Normally it builds up with everything going on through Saturday, but it built up to this climax on Thursday. And then you had this little lull on Friday and then it went right back up for Saturday. So it was a bigger sense of excitement, I think, for athletes and for spectators for a longer period of time. What I would say is there was all this talk about the locals. We had to respect the locals. We had to, and I, I understand that. And I think that there's merit to that, but the locals clearly aren't it's not both ways. Like the locals don't seem to want us there. They make that very well known. And it, things like it, the things that you hear from them are, it took me a long time to go to the grocery store. I really don't like having you here. And I'm like, I have a limited patience for that. It's one now, two days. I get two days is double the imposition, but we're still talking about a very short time period that net benefits that area in a gigantic way. They know because they didn't have the race for a couple of years and they know the economic benefits that this brings to them. Are a small fraction of the athletes annoying and not behaving in a way that they should? Absolutely. But for locals then to say we don't want the whole race here because of that, I I, I, I just have a hard time accepting that. And I also have a hard time being deluged constantly by this messaging that we have to respect the locals because I respect the locals everywhere I go. I don't need to have to be continuously reminded of that because that's how I behave everywhere I go. I recognize that there are some people who don't, but to tell everybody that message over and over and over again you begin to feel unwelcome. And Um, on top of the behaviors that you see from Kona people all the time, anyways, I knew of a cyclist that that he was riding legally in a very respectful manner and a car pulled out of a gas station. He ran into that car. And then the driver's attitude was, you should have seen me pulling out. You should have stopped. (laughs) And you wouldn't say that to a driver of an automobile that if you got T-boned because you behaved irresponsibly. So I'm not sure where you get off then telling a driver of a bicycle, but that is the way locals behave there. Yeah. So they got some work to do on the PR side. It seems like I think this has been an issue for years. It's worse now that the race is over two days. And as we've seen with all the other negatives, as I said, I think net positive because the women deserve their own race. The women's race was a huge success. Next year will be even better when there's no men's age groups competing with them at the same time. And that's all wonderful. It was really terrific. It was great for me racing on Saturday because seeing the race on Thursday allowed me to reset my own expectations and reset my own reasons for being there and be much calmer on Friday and Saturday. I still have this issue with Ironman. I don't like that they always put the women before the men because number one, it makes the men seem more important. And number two, as a male who wants to watch the women... I want once in a while to be able to go and do my race first and then be able to relax. And that's never the case. I wonder if they'll flip it once. I wonder, there's been a lot of people suggesting that they flip flop the days going forward so that it, exactly what you just said. can flip flop Even 70.3 world, same thing. They never flip flop them. And I wish they would because it's always the same problem there as well. I go every year and every year I have to watch and then race. And I would love it to be the other way around once in a while. Race, how it went, your particular race. Yeah, I was very pleased. I had a slower time than I did in 2018, but it was a much better executed race. And actually, 
did better in all three disciplines as far as I'm concerned. The times were slower, I think, just because it was a much different day. 2018 was one of those perfect days where the bike splits for everybody were much, much faster. And so even though I put out much higher power, much higher, I put out a definite percentage of higher power on the bike this time, I was 10 minutes slower just because we had a much windier day. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was. So my power in 2018 was 175 to one. I think it was 175 normalized and I biked 513. And this year I biked 190 normalized and I was 520. Definitely made a difference to the conditions on the day. The other thing was my run was faster and I ran much more consistently, but it was so hot. I just don't run all that well in that kind of condition. But I was thrilled with my swim, came out of the swim feeling fresher than I ever have, had a very solid bike and then ran in a way that I was quite pleased. My overall time was uh, about 10, nine minutes slower than I was in 2018. But again, very different day. And I felt like I executed much better. And so I was really pleased. And my overall placing top 15% in my age group this year, much better than last time with a much bigger age group last time, 415. Last time I was just in the top 50% of an age group made a, that was only 200 or so. Mm-hmm. So I feel like overall, just a much better day, really enjoyed it. And you get to the finish of this and you're like, okay, I'm done. I've done with Kona. I think I've done my thing now. And of course it'll be, I'm sure it'll be a couple of weeks before I'll start hearing that little <laughs> voice whispering. I was looking at the, thinking about the pros And as a coach, I'd be curious your opinion that we had, what, 10 people go under eight hours. We had a course record on both the run and the bike. And maybe the wind was a little less for them. I don't know what the conditions were for their time versus when you were on the course a little bit. It does change pretty fast sometimes. What's your take on how these people are just crushing these course records? Yeah. First of all, I was one, I was the second to last wave. So I left a full hour and 10 minutes after the pros. And there's no doubt the winds definitely made a huge difference. I saw them coming back when I was at Waikoloa going mm. out. So I had a long way to go when they were already coming back. So yeah, there's no question the winds pick up later in the day, as everyone knows. And so we were subjected to much more wind than they were. That being said, those times were completely ridiculous. I, I there's definitely I think there's a lot to be said about the fact that a lot of these guys are coming out of ITU where they're used to racing fast for all three disciplines. That's one thing. We're seeing that even in 70.3 now, where a guy like Matt Sharp, who comes out of the Olympics and is winning at 70.3, taking his ITU type speed and bringing it to 70.3. Now, that's not the same as bringing that speed to Ironman, obviously. But uh, clearly, something is changing. There's something changing in the techniques that these people are using to train. I'm not familiar with how they're training. I'm sure this is all going to come out at some point. But when we look at the old days, like if we look at someone like Lionel Sanders, who just puts in huge amounts of volume over the entire year, you have to find yourself wondering, are people like Gustav Eden, Christian Blumenfeld, uh, now Blau, are they putting in more intensive efforts for shorter periods of time and training blocks and then having much more recovery time? I just, I don't feel like I have a great answer, but I'm really interested to know over time, is something going to come out that shows how these young guys have changed the way they're approaching training? Because I don't think nutrition is the answer. I really don't. Obviously, you have to have good nutrition to succeed, but that that they're all doing good nutrition. I think right. that it, it's got to be something more than that. Do you feel like it'll change how you look at training a little bit? Are you even looking at your own 
execution your own style of training and maybe considering something different? It's hard to compare myself as a 55-year-old to a 20-something-year-old pro. I look at those times and we're not in the same stratosphere. I think also I have to figure in a lot more strength training as an older individual. I have to figure in a lot more recovery time. But yes, I'm definitely interested to learn what's going on to to get these guys as fast as they are. And I look at some of the younger age groups too. The 25 to 29, I knew a guy that went under 10 hours and finished 30 something. He was comfortably under 10 hours. So this is not unique to the pros. There's something else going on here. And I, I think part of it is we're seeing a a new generation of just superstar athletes that are just coming into this. But I think also there's something different going on. And I could tell you that amongst the coaches I work with, we're also wondering collectively what is going on here and how are they managing it? I do not mean for a second to insinuate that there's anything amiss. I think that it's all above board until I hear otherwise. But clearly there is something that they're doing differently. And I'd be fascinated to know. I talked to Andy Potts about that one time, actually, and he has, his theory is that the, it's a mental barrier that they've overcome. It's the eight-hour mental barrier that you're like, okay, now it's possible. So you just mentally get over those humps just like any other sport. When somebody scores 100 points in basketball, that's the new – you like you just can get past these barriers if you know somebody else does it. Yeah. That's part of it. Yeah. I think also when you look at the swim and the bike in Kona are not difficult. The thing that makes the bike course in Kona difficult is the conditions. And if you get good conditions, and I understand the pros had really good conditions early in the day, you can be super fast out there. So then it comes down to the run. And that run is a very difficult run because it's got a lot of elevation in it. And then of course, you factor in the heat. And I think a lot of these guys have figured out how to train properly for heat and how to keep themselves cool and hydrate. And based on that, and there's always going to be athletes who do better in the heat than others. We see some superstar athletes who don't do well in Kona and others who do great in Kona and then struggle on other circuits. So I think that if you get a good day, you're going to see a lot of people go fast on the bike. And then it's going to come down to who can run well in that heat. And we just happen to have 236 in that <laughs> on that run course is amazing. And the guy who comes in second runs 244. It's really remarkable. So yeah, it was quite a remarkable day. And uh, I think that there's a lot to parse out there. But in my mind, they got good bike conditions, strong bikers who had good bike conditions. And then it was just a matter of, we have some really amazing runners who can run well in the heat. Gustav Eden showed that in Florida last year. He duplicated it again. Christian showed it in Cozumel, duplicated it again in Hawaii. So I think if you have guys who can run well in the heat, they're going to do well in Kona. So yeah, for sure. Part of it. Will you, are you going to go back next year? No, I'm not going back next year. And that kind of comes to this whole idea of how I do balance everything. But it, we sat down as a family and I had thought about taking Kona Fitness and going to Cozumel to try and qualify. But decision was made as a group collectively that we're not going to do an Ironman next year, take a break for next year at least and consider going forward what the plans will be. We'll see. Yeah. So talk about that for a minute, your family and how they play a part in your aspirations, your goals, your, and you mentioned the decision, you all sound like you sat down and I get it. It takes a lot out of your being a father or being a husband and takes away from those opportunities, those responsibilities. Talk about that overall situation. 
It's a huge lift for my family to support me in doing this. And I was never more acutely aware of that than in the last six weeks or so, because in my ramp up to Kona this year, I did a much bigger build than I did in 2018. I was training 16 to 20 hours a week over the last, basically since Ironman Bo- or since Boulder 70.3, which was early August. So for over two months, I was putting in huge volumes of training time-wise and had an enormous impact on my ability to perform last Saturday, but it also had an enormous impact on my stress levels because I knew I needed to balance my work that I was doing. And I also needed to balance family things. And my wife was incredible, but not once did she questioned, not once did she come and say to me, look, I really need your help. Or it was always, always pitched in whenever I could and made sure that I was there. But I really had a lot of flexibility because the kids and my wife were so understanding. And that comes from the meetings and the discussions we have at the beginning of every year. And this goes back to earlier in my triathlon career when I was much more selfish and really wasn't paying as much attention to their needs as I needed to. And there was a lot more tension in the house around my racing and training. And I was just obtuse and selfish, as I think a lot of us can be when we're in this sport. And it just took my, I don't know, getting through my own getting over myself a bit to recognize (laughs) what I was doing to them. And then in 2020, when we had the pandemic and everything else going on, I came to this realization before 2020. But then in 2020, when my daughter was sick, and we became much closer as a family unit as my daughter got through her cancer. And we we now are much, much tighter. And they're my anchor for everything. And yeah, we sit down together at the beginning of every year when I'm thinking about races for next year. And we sit down and we say, I say, look, this is what I'm thinking about. And does this work with everybody's activities? Does this work with everybody's schedules? If a race works, then I'll pencil it in. 70.3s are easy because they don't take nearly as much time. Even the ones that I have to travel for, I generally just show up on a Thursday or Friday and I'm back on the Sunday. And then sometimes I'll do destination races. So like next year, we decided we're going to go do Mont Tremblant 70.3 and we're from Montreal. So it gives us an opportunity to go as a family and see our family who's still back in Montreal and then see some friends and we'll spend a week around the race doing things that we all want to do. And then when it comes to Ironman, it's a much bigger decision. So we sat down back in July. We knew already we were I was going to Kona and we that, was, that had all been decided. And I sat down back in July and I said, look, I have an aspiration to, to try and finish top five in my age group. To do that, I would need to do the following. And I had this because I had spoken to my coach and I knew what would be involved in training volume. And I laid it all out and I, and we sat and we talked about it over a couple of dinners. And in the end, my daughter, who's going to college next year, she said, dad, I'd really rather you were around more. And I don't know that if you're training that much, if you will be around quite as much. And, uh, My wife said that she wasn't really sure that she she could manage with me training quite that much. And I said, okay, that's fine. Then I won't do it. Up until then, I'd been toying with the idea, as I said, of going to Cozumel to try and qualify for Kona again. And at this point, if I'm going to go to Kona, it's not going to be to complete it. It's not going to be to do, it's going to really be to try to compete at the top level. And unless I'm able to put in the training to do that, I don't really want to go back there. I can focus on 70.3 and 70.3 worlds where I have a better chance with training less. And that's how we made that decision together. And I am completely 100% at peace with it because they're so important to me. And they're such a big part of the whole equation. That's awesome. How old are your kids? 
So my youngest are 13 and my oldest is 17. So you have twins, sounds like? Yeah, yeah, boy-girl twins. Okay, so you're right in the thick of all the high school sports and activities and homecomings and proms and all of those. Yeah, you can't miss that out. I get it. My daughter's in college now, so I'm more of the, oh boy, now what do I do? Because she's at CSU and doing her thing. So I'm like, maybe I should get back into triathlon someday. But There you go. Suddenly you got more time. (laughs) But you got three kids. You got all those activities. You've got, and let's talk about your profession as an ER doc. And you've got that. And your coach, how do you do all of that? So as an emergency physician, there's two things that are so important in our day-to-day job, and they are time management and multitasking. You have to be able to be good at both of those things to be a good emergency physician. There's just no way to do it otherwise. You're faced with multiple patients who have multiple kinds of presentations, different levels of acuity, and you have to take care of all of them at the same time. So you have to be very on top of the clock and you have to be very on top of all of the different things going around, going on around you. So I think I take that home with me and I apply that to my everyday life. I definitely am very good at parsing out my schedule and I have a coach who's very good at working with me. So I send him my weekly schedule on Thursday. I tell him, here's what my availability is next week. I've got an hour this day, two hours this day, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, he pencils in my training around my availability to make sure that my training fits around my life, not the other way around. Because for too long, my life was fitting around my training and it was just, it was not working. So now my training fits around my life. And the other thing is that emergency medicine lends itself particularly well to triathlon in one way in that because I do shift work, I tend to have a lot of time around my shifts. So for example, I'm actually working today in the evening. I have the time before my shift to get my training done. So I have a run and I have a swim to do. So once we're done with our interview here, I'm going to get out the door and go do my run. And when I come back, I'm going to head off to the pool and I'll go straight from the pool right in to do my shift. So I'm able to get my clinical work done around my training pretty easily. But I do have a lot of administrative work and my administrative work involves a lot of meetings. And I will say that the pandemic actually made that significantly easier because now all my meetings are done virtually. Used to be I had to be in the office and going to meetings in person. And since the pandemic, our meetings have been almost entirely online. And so it's become significantly easier for me to do my training at home and work my training and my meetings around each other so that they don't interfere and they don't conflict. And I'm able to get all my work done and still get my training done. But there's no coach too, right? And I coach. And so I take that same philosophy for my own training into my coaching. And I do my coaching. All my athletes know I'm available to them continuously. So I make myself incredibly available by text message and email. As long as I'm not working clinically, I will respond immediately. And I like that kind of availability so that they know that they can ask me to change workouts or comment on a workout. Because I tell them I'm not going to be looking at their schedule every day. I just can't. But I do look at their workouts basically once or twice a week. And then I schedule them on the weekends. I carve out a block of time every weekend, either anywhere from Friday, Saturday, Sunday, depending on my own clinical schedule. And I will sit down and I will put in all their schedules for the next week. And uh, I schedule my athletes week to week, partly because it allows me to give them training that works around their life. And also because it allows me to be much more on top of their workouts and data, as opposed to scheduling two or 
even a month at a time, two weeks or a month at a time, where I would only be able to look at their schedules less common, less frequently because of my other obligations. So what do you do? What What's the unplanned fun things that the TriDoc likes to do? Well, and that's the thing, right? So when it comes down to making all this work, we haven't even touched on things like my podcast, which also is time consuming. And, right. and then I write for different triathlon publications. And honestly, the, the biggest thing that has helped me be able to do all of these things is sacrifice. So I don't watch TV. I don't read I love to read. I love reading. Reading is one of my favorite things to do, reading novels or historical fiction. I love reading and I have not read a book. I can't even remember the last time because it just, that's one of the things that I had to cut out. I cut out most of my hobbies. I love photography. I love doing video work. I love doing all kinds of things. And I have had to consciously cut all those things out because those are the things I don't have time for. Outside of training and spending time with the kids and getting all these other things done, I really don't do a lot. But when we go on vacations, we go scuba diving because that's a big thing for me. And we do ski every winter. So I do take time during my off season from training when I am still training, but part of my training becomes skiing. And so those are the things that I like to do for fun that I do still fit in, but they have to fit in the rest of my life. So yeah, that, that's been the big thing is sacrifice. I don't, cooking is something else I love to do. I love to cook. <laughs> and I just... I don't have time to, to, to put in the effort to do the slow cooking that I love to do. And so I will do those things after 70.3 worlds are over. I have a block from November until the new year and maybe a little bit beyond where I will call that my drinking season. And I don't mean I'm going to be because <laughs> I don't right. I tend not to drink very much alcohol at all from January 1st until the end of my season. And then I, we love to collect wine. And so my wife and I will start. She's been drinking wine all along, but I will dig in and enjoy with her from the end of Worlds all the way through to the new year. And then I'll take up some of the other things like cooking and the stuff that I've had to sacrifice. So you do have a little of that humanity side where you like to have a sip of wine and like to relax a little bit. What are, what's a favorite wine? What's your go-to? So we have a pretty large cellar, and I will say that I several years ago I did the Vine Man, and we spent a lot of time in the Russian River Valley exploring Pinots, and so I've become quite a fan of Pinot Noir. And right now we have a fairly good selection from Costa Brown, which is a winery that you can't really buy. You have to buy direct from them and you have to be on their list. And so I've been able to get quite a few Costa Brown Pinot Noirs. And a friend, her daughter operated a winery that was called La Piste. Oh, I'm going to get it wrong. La Piste. Oh, I'm going to get it wrong. Anyways, it's unfortunate because they had to just close the winery because of some family issues that went on. It was a wonderful winery. They made wonderful p- Pinots as well. So yeah, Pinot Noir is probably my favorite right now. Pinot Noir. Okay. So you, what do you think is your future in 10 years or 15? Do you see yourself tuning back some of this as your kids maybe go off to college and, or do you see it ramping back up or how do you feel like your career is going to evolve? Yeah, it's a great question. So the reason I started coaching was because I wanted to step back from medicine. I love being an emergency physician, but it's hard. It's hard doing overnight shifts. It's hard working weekends. It's And the pandemic made emergency medicine that much harder. Medicine itself has just become really difficult to do. So I am looking forward in the next five years or so. We've already been We've already been planning for it and talking about it. But in the next five to six years, my wife and I both hope to retire 
or medicine. And coaching will become much more of a bigger part of my full-time kind of gig. And so I'm trying to build that coaching business over those next few years. I've really been successful working with my friends and colleagues at LifeSport, and I look forward to doing more of that. I think we will consider living abroad. We both love France. We speak French. That's a place we might go settle down for a little while, but we'll continue to travel and I'll continue to train. And if if it's possible, I'll continue to race because triathlon has been a huge part of my life and it's become a huge part of who I am. And there's no question wherever we go abroad, it's going to be somewhere I can bring my bike and ride. So adding some running and swimming is not going to be difficult and definitely as we know, Ironman and 70.3 has become a very much a worldwide kind of endeavor. So I would envision myself in the next 10 years being very much the same, but having a lot more free time. Do you see yourself doing maybe something different, like a Norseman or just a different kind of racing period, off, off-road, off gravel? Or I love like gravel. I love gravel. I have done more and more gravel this year. I did the SBT gravel. I did the Enciero gravel. And I do enjoy riding gravel. And I would like to continue to explore that and do more. I really love triathlon. I, I have tried Xterra and I'm just not that good of a mountain biker. And I'm not at my age. It's unlikely I'm going to become technically proficient at mountain biking. Gravel's great. If gravel triathlons come to being, I will likely pursue something like that for fun. But the thing is, right now, I continue to learn. It's amazing. I, Kona was, I've been doing it for over 20 years, and I did Kona, and I learned so many things on that race. Things that I, I keep coming out of races going, wow, I learned some really valuable things that I'm going to use on my next race. So I, I just feel like as long as I continue to get something out of racing, regular triathlon i'll continue doing that and would i do other things for sure i've not really considered the extreme triathlons that's not my character i don't ultras don't appeal to me that's not to say i would never say never but at this point those aren't in the cards i i think that i like going fast i like racing hard and i know that for those things it's more of a endurance slog and getting mentally through those kinds of obstacles and th- it's less about that for me i'm i don't know if i'm blown away intimidated or something about your wide variety of interest skills and just how you attack life a little bit with so much. If you had 25 hours in a day, what would you do with that extra hour? Read. Read. I pick up a book. Yeah. Because I think that I regret that I'm under read. I, I learned more from reading and that's both fiction and nonfiction than from anything else. And I miss that. If I could find that time to read more, that's what I would do. I would be reading because I know how valuable that is for me. And I know how much I get out of reading. And that's what I would add back if I had the time. Who's your favorite historical fiction author? I love historical fiction, by the way. Oh, that's a good question. I can tell you all my favorite fiction authors, and some of them have written historical fiction, but my favorite historical fiction author, what's the last historical fiction book I read? I read one about Henry VIII, and I can't remember who wrote it. See, I'm not going to be very good. It's so long (laughs) ago that I read, but uh, there was a really good book I read about, it's been a while since I read that book, but I can't remember who wrote it or what even the name of the book was, but it was about, it was about the court of Henry VIII and it was about a particular individual within the court and I'm being totally useless right now, but (laughs) yeah, I'm sorry. I, I, fiction writers I'm much better with because I know who my favorites are, but a couple of Canadian authors, 
actually three Canadian authors, uh, Margaret Atwood, who yeah. people will know as the author of The Handmaid's Tale, Mordecai Richler, a Montreal author who most people probably won't be familiar with, but has written a, a ton of books, and somebody that most people I'm sure won't have heard of named Rohinton Mystery, who's a Toronto author originally from India who's written a bunch of books. One of them was turned into a movie called Such a Long Journey, but he's written several books that are really fantastic, very richly written. And then, total nerd that I am, Charles Dickens, one of my oh, favorite authors. Nice. Yeah. So some people do audio books. Have you ever, do you do anything like that when you ride bikes? Uh, no, I watch, that's when I catch up on like television stuff is when I, and movies is when I'm riding on the trainer. I spend almost all my bike riding is on the trainer because it's oh. the most time efficient. So in between meetings and stuff, I can program stuff in trainer road and then I'm downstairs. I do not do Zwift. I never liked Zwift, but I really like trainer road because it's on the bottom of the screen and I'm watching television or movies. Uh, there's a good tip. That's a pro tip right there, right? All the indoor training and I can't bring myself to do it very well. I try, but I- I've never heard of any. And the other problem is because of what I do, right? I'm all, I'm very attuned to the carnage on the roads, and I've never heard of anybody getting hit by a car on their trainer. I so I feel like it's safer, it's more time efficient, and I get to catch up on the things that everybody else is watching. Yeah, makes sense. This has been great to get to know you better. I and I like your podcast. What is your? I am curious. What's the future of the podcast, and what's your kind of what's your why with your podcast? So the why, that's a great question too. So the why of the podcast has really been the same from the very beginning. And that is to share my ability of understanding the science and understanding the scientific literature to help triathletes tease apart what's given to them in marketing. And we always see the devices and products and whatever it is thrown at triathletes telling them that this particular thing is going to make them either faster or train better or recover better and backed up by dubious claims. And then when I go and I dig into it, I can very quickly tease apart the fact that maybe not, but I think the average triathlete can't do that. And so I like to play the role of the intermediary who can help mm. triathletes answer some of those questions. So I have spent a lot of my time doing that. I've also spent a lot of my time helping triathletes understand some basic physiology things around how they can improve their own fitness, how they can deal with the realities of aging, and also how they can understand injury and how to deal with injury and how to prevent them if possible. So that's been the why. In terms of the future of the podcast, eventually I'd love to go to a weekly. Right now it's just not feasible. I just don't have time. I have really enjoyed putting on the podcast. It's something I just love doing, but I recognize that it would be more successful if I went to weekly. And that's definitely something I want to do eventually when I have more time. And I will change the format if people want me to, or feel like it's something that needs to be done. I'm open to doing whatever listeners feel will improve the program. Right now, it's basically a two-segment program where it's me reviewing or talking about a particular particular topic of interest to the listeners and then interviewing someone in the world of multi-sport. And then after Kona, I got a chance to meet a bunch of people who have promised me they're going to come and talk with me. So I'm pretty excited about that in the near term. Perfect. And yeah, we'll keep going on that and see how it works out. So quick couple of things to put you on the spot and then I got one final question for you. What's a What's one of the biggest underrated products or science or nutrition for an athlete, you think? Something that aero bars are completely underrated. I'd probably not. But what's something in your opinion that's so underrated that gives the athlete the best advantage? Sleep. I think that we're always looking to spend money on things. And the reality is 
just being well rested has been shown over and over again to improve performance and recovery. And we are so busy and we are so worried about missing workouts that we will sacrifice sleep and we need to do a better job. And I, I'm terrible at it as a older man who's never been able to sleep well to begin with. As you get older, sleep becomes more problematic. And plus with what I do and trying to squeeze everything in, I tend not to be, I tend not to listen to my own advice, but <laughs> sleep is definitely it. And most of the things that I've reviewed, the best things are the cheapest. Sleep's a great one. Caffeine is one that I think everybody knows about, but it doesn't cost very much, but proves to be good for performance and for health. Hmm. So yeah, focus on the little things and focus on the things that are easy to do. And uh, you'll actually see much more improvements benefit than anything you as an athlete over 50. What's a myth about aging athletes and their ability to perform? That they can't get better or that they can't get faster. And this whole notion in Western, especially in the United States that, you know, we need a pill, this idea that, oh, I have low testosterone. I got news for you guys. That's getting older. Your testosterone level is going to drop. You don't need to replace it and you don't need to do anything about that. That's just the way it works. You can overcome that by improving the amount of strength work you do by giving yourself the grace to have a little bit more recovery time. And the reality is, is as you see, the 50 to 54 age group is one of the fastest age groups out there. <laughs> Because those guys are tearing it up. And I moved now into the 55, 59. You know what? It's not that much slower. So now I, there's definitely a 55, 59 is when you start to see things begin to slow down. And it, but it's not at the bottom. It's at the top of that age group. But the reality is that we can continue. And this goes for women as well. As we age, we can continue to perform well into our late 50s. And I believe into our mid 60s. As long as we attune ourselves to our bodies, pay attention, and really incorporate strength work and proper nutrition. That's good. I'll ask this question. I don't know how much more you want to go, but you talk about reading. And someday somebody's going to read about Dr. Jeff Sankoff and his life. Define success in Jeff Sankoff's life. <laughs> I, I think I want to have an impact on people who can then go out and have an impact on others. I know that I have done that in my professional life because I've had the great fortune to work with young residents who I train in emergency medicine and have gone out to then have a huge impact on saving other people's lives everywhere in the rest of this country and around the world. And I hear from them frequently that I made a big impact in their education and allowed them to be the kinds of physicians that they became. And that to me is incredibly rewarding. I'd love to have the same impact on triathletes. I'd love, I love being part of the journey with my athletes and seeing how they get the joy and see the improvements from my own experiences and see how they then take that and bring that to other athletes who then get that joy as well. And to me, that's the most important thing and the, and what, a, how I would define success. My personal successes, I've achieved many of them, but my overall success would really be to be that, to, to have an impact on others who then go forward and take those impacts elsewhere to even more people. Perfect. I love it. Well, Bill, I, 
Thank you so much for uh, some really terrific questions and for uh, so much of your time. It was really very generous of you. And uh, I look forward to hanging out with you and discussing triathlon more in the future. And uh, we will, of course, watch and see what happens with uh, the races in Kona and here in Colorado. And I look forward to a bright future for 303 as well. Yeah, thank you a lot. Thanks a lot. It's been a pleasure to be on and get to know you better. And let's love to try some of your Pinot someday if the opportunity ever arises. It will, I assure you. All right. Okay. Take care. Have a good day. You too. And that's it for another episode. The TriDoc Podcast is produced and edited by me, Jeff Sankoff, along with my interns. I'm Agent Johnson. This is Special Agent Johnson. Oh, how you doing? <laughs> no relation. I'm, uh... I'm Jeff Sankoff, uh, the, the TriDoc. I'm in charge here. Not anymore. Those interns are Ian Johnson and Ben Johnson. You can find the show notes for everything discussed on the show today, as well as archives of previous episodes at tridocpodcast.com. Do you have questions about any of the issues discussed on this episode, or do you have a question that you'd like for me to consider answering on a future episode? Send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com, or join the private Tridoc Podcast Facebook group on Facebook, and you can submit your questions there. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit try.coaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the TriDoc Podcast Facebook page, TriDoc Coaching on Instagram, and the TriDoc Coaching YouTube channel. If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope that you'll consider leaving me a rating and a review, as well as subscribe to the show wherever you download it. And of course, there's always the option of becoming a supporter of the podcast at patreon.com forward slash Podcast. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is Radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another medical question for me to answer and another interview with someone in the world of multisport. Until then, remember 1121 and train hard, train healthy.